All right, if you'd like to uh, open your Bibles, we're going to be uh, continuing our journey through the book of Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew. We are in Matthew chapter 1. And as you're making your way that direction, if you don't have a Bible with you, or if you don't have a New King James and you want to grab one out of the seat pocket in front of you, we've got those available as well. Or you can pull up your favorite app, just type in Matthew 1.1 and you'll make your way that direction. Uh, while you're getting there, I'll give you a little bit of an intro and a, a catch-up from where we were last week. We talked about the four gospel messages and how each of the different gospel writers was actually writing from a different point of view. They're all writing, seeing a different side of the same Jesus. And so we liken that back to Ezekiel chapter 1, where Ezekiel gets a vision of the throne of God, and as he gets this vision, he sees these four-faced angels. And the angels' faces were the face of an ox, an eagle, a man, and a lion. And so when we turn all the way to the right in our Bible, to Revelation 4, we see John reporting the same thing as he sees the throne of God. He sees four-faced creatures, an ox, an eagle, a man, and a lion. And we took that and tied that parallel together to explain that this goes along with the gospel accounts, that each gospel message is presenting a different face, but all pointing to the same throne, the same Jesus. Uh, the first is the Gospel of Mark. He presents Jesus to, as a suffering servant. He's writing his Gospel to a predominantly Roman world who's made up, uh, the majority of which, of slaves. And so to them, Jesus being presented as a suffering servant is very relatable. Uh, Mark 10.45, Jesus in his own words said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Mark is presenting Jesus as the oxen, the the creature that is the beast of burden. Uh, now, one thing we'll note is Mark does not contain a genealogy. So uh, there's no reason to have a genealogy for a servant or a slave because nobody cares who your daddy is when you're a slave. They just care that you're there to work. So there is no genealogy in the Gospel of Mark. Luke, on the other hand, presents his Gospel looking uh, for and looking to the perfect man. He writes to a Greek audience. The Greeks were enamored with philosophy and education, and they, they love this idea of who is the perfect man. So Luke does, in fact, give us a genealogy in Luke chapter 3. Why? Because uh, Captain Obvious here, if you're going to be presented as the perfect man, you must first be born. And so over and over again, we see Luke referring to Jesus as the son of man. Now, thirdly, we have John's gospel, and John presents Jesus as the son of God. And so, beginning right off the bat in John 1.1, 1, 1, he says, uh, and, and in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. He's not pulling any punches. In fact, John, in John chapter 20, says that he's writing his gospel for two reasons. One, so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and so that in knowing this, you may have eternal life. So John's gospel presents Jesus from the face of the eagle, this picture of deity flying high over uh, the earth. Now, that brings us all the way up to uh, the Gospel of Matthew, where we're going to see, uh, to begin with, a genealogy. Now, Matthew's Gospel is written with Jesus being presented as the Messiah. He's writing to a Jewish audience, so he's presenting the lion, this last face, of the tribe of Judah. Now, one of the key words we talked about, or really the key word in the Gospel of Matthew, is the word fulfilled. And the reason for that is, if you're going to uh, show and examine and really put out there that Jesus is the Messiah, then he must fulfill all the prophecies that went along with the Messiah. And the Old Testament is chock 
full of prophecies that speak. And Jesus would fulfill not one or two, but he would fulfill everyone. Which, by the way, if there are any of you people that like math, I'm a math nerd, I love it, that the odds of Jesus fulfilling just eight of the prophecies from the Old Testament are one times 10 to the 17th power. So I don't even know how big of a number that is. That's billions upon billions upon billions upon billions. But the odds of him just fulfilling eight of the 300 prophecies that are in the Old Testament are completely implausible unless you're God. And so uh, this is what we're going to look at when we make our study through the Gospel of Matthew. Now, let's begin by meeting Jesus' family, right? Uh, first of all, uh, family, right? We've all got them. We all love them. Uh, some of us have a relation a little bit closer than others. For my wife and I, when we first started uh, dating, we both grew up in KZ, Illinois, and we started dating in high school. And so uh, I was excited to, to have a, a, a girl that was blonde-haired and blue-eyed actually go out with me because uh, not only was she beautiful, but she was also from California. She was a transplant, right? So we wish they all could be California girls. So I'm excited because, uh, for one, she's pretty, but two, there's new blood in town, right? You've got to be careful with these kind of things in a small town. You, you know, you want to make sure you're not dating your sister. So these are things we have to really consider. So one of the first places we were able to go out uh, on a date at was actually a cousin's birthday party. And so I bring Angela along to one of our cousin's uh, birthday parties. And while we're there, she says, hey, uh, what are Brennan and Brighton doing here? I'm like, well, what do you mean? They're my cousins. And she stops. She looks at me and she says, wait, those are my cousins. How can they be your cousins? And so this instant panic. Now, panic for her because she's thinking she's dating her cousin. Panic for me because I'm like, I finally got a blonde-haired girl to pay attention to me. I don't want to lose her. So what if she's my cousin? That's not really that big a deal, right, guys? Like, we'll, we'll, we'll look past a lot of things. Now, thankfully, thankfully, she was related to my uncle's side through marriage, and uh, I'm related to the aunt's side. So all's good. We're not actually related. But we did have a scare there that took many grandmothers laying out genealogies in order to prove that she is not your cousin. All right, so there's an embarrassing story that Angela has no idea that I just told you guys. So, because she's down in children's church. So let's begin in Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read the first 17 verses. And I'm going to try not to mispronounce lots of names. It starts with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Amenadab, Amenadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Solomon. Solomon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. And David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, and Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa, and Asa begot Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah, Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time that they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel begot Abiud, Abiud begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor. 
Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Achim, Achim begot Eliud, Eliud begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Matan, Matan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations, and from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Whew, we made it through that. Now, many of you are wondering, what in the world did we just read? Did we really read all the begets? The answer is yes, we did. Now, why? Right? Why do genealogies matter? Why is it important for us to even look at these things? And the first note that I want to point out, and this is going to be true throughout our study of gospel over the next however many years the Lord gives me, it's that the whole of the Bible can be summed up as one person and two events. The one person it all points to is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The two events are his first coming and his second coming. And so every genealogy that does not focus specifically on Jesus, it, we, you will find in the Old Testament eventually just drifts away. We won't see the continuation of the genealogy if it doesn't concern the line of the Messiah. Now, Beyond that, what we're going to see are three major genealogies that if you're just taking notes, you're going to want to jot down. And they are in Genesis 5, Genesis 10, known as the Table of Nations, and then Matthew 1 slash Luke 3, which are both genealogies concerning Jesus. So the book starts off with, with this phrase, though, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And that's a very specific way that Matthew started the book, and it may not ring any kind of bells because you would have to go all the way back, all the way to the left of your Bible, to Genesis 5, before you will see that exact phrase again, which causes us to wonder why would that exact phraseology be used. But we see in Genesis chapter 5, it, it starts off like this. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. And so the exact way that Matthew starts his gospel is the way that Moses wrote Genesis, 1,500 years before the time of Christ, he started off by saying, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to read all this genealogy too. I'm going to point out that there are 10 names that are specifically mentioned in this genealogy. And they are Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and then Noah. Now, how in the world does this apply? Not only do we have one confusing genealogy, we now have two. Well, uh, have no fear. I'm going to reveal to you, or maybe some of you have heard this before, but this is what we call the hidden uh, gospel within Genesis chapter 5. So if I can get the slide to pull up, we're also going to learn a little bit of Hebrew. So each one of these names has a Hebrew translation. Uh, the name Adam means man. Seth means appointed. Uh, Enosh means mortal. Kenan means sorrow, Mahalel means the blessed God, Jared means shall come down, Enoch means teaching, Methuselah means his death shall bring, Lamech means despairing, and Noah means rest. Which means if you put all these names together with their meetings in Genesis chapter 5, it would read something like this. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. Now, you can't tell me that Moses had any idea as he was writing this 1,500 years before the birth of Christ that he was, he was inserting these names in this exact order. 
proving that there is a Holy Spirit fingerprint very much on this book that we are studying together. So all these genealogies then are tying back to Christ. This one, even way back in the early parts of our Bible, are tying directly to the blessed God that shall come down. One other thing to note, too, when we look at Genesis 5, there's an important phrase that's included after the begats, and it's this, and he died. With every person that Moses introduces us to as he's writing down these first ten names, it, it includes, and he died. But if we go to Matthew, notice what's missing. It is only begat. Begat. There is no mention of death. And that's because with Adam came death. But with Jesus, there is only life. There is no death in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, did these people actually die? Of course they did. But I'm speaking specifically about the spiritual. That this sin nature that has plagued us for thousands of years was taken away because of the second Adam, the blood of Jesus. All right, let's continue on with a cursory view of some of these names that might pop out to us. Uh, to begin with, what we, what we notice is four women that are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, why is this important? Well, uh, back in uh, early times, and really even until just recent history, women were not considered to be important enough to be inserted into genealogy in any way, shape, or form. In fact, women were often uh, considered property. So you can thank the expanse of the gospel in Christianity because everywhere Christianity goes, women's rights increase. Everywhere that it goes, they are cared for and tended to the way God intended for them to be. And, and this is no exception that in the gospel of Matthew, he inserts uh, four different women in the line, in the lineage of Jesus. And so that, that begs the question to why. So let's take a quick look at each of these four women, a little bit about their story. Uh, to begin with, we have Tamar, who was the wife of Judah, who begat Perez. Now, uh, Tamar, in Genesis chapter 38 is where we find her, is maybe one, uh, as a teacher of the Bible, uh, one of those chapters we don't really want to go through and teach. Because it's, it's probably the more PG-13 to rated R chapters. I'm going to save you most of the details about what took place but, uh, and, and just give you the highlights for the sake of the audience. But uh, it, it begins with Tamar being married to one of the sons of Judah. Now, this son was not able to give her a child, and he actually passed away, leaving uh, Tamar as a widow. So at this time, what they would do is if your husband died and you did not have a son as a descendant, you would actually be given to the next brother in line so that he could hopefully have a child with you and you would have a son. And that son would be considered the, in the place of the uh, brother that had passed away. In other words, the family line then wouldn't die with the death of the brother. So Tamar is then given to the next brother in line, to which uh, that's a really interesting story that we'll skip. But just uh, know this, he died as well. God actually struck him dead. He was that evil. And so Judah is now 0 for 2 with sons, and Tamar is 0 for 2 with husbands. Judah's got one son left, and he's like, listen, I don't want this woman marrying my boy. She's killing them all. So he tells her, look, I will give you my son, my next one, but he's very young. So give him a few years. Let me raise him up a little bit, and then I'll give him to you as a husband. And then he promptly forgot. He conveniently forgot to give his next son 
to Tamar, who is now left as a widow with no way to take care of herself. Remember, there's no welfare programs. There's no way for her to care for herself without a man in this society helping her along financially. And so Tamar was a resourceful young lady. She takes matters into her own hands. She dresses herself up as a prostitute, puts a veil over her face so she can't be seen, and she knows a few of her father-in-law's weak spots, that one might be the ladies, and so she uh, stands along the side of the road knowing he's going to pass by and woos him and convinces him to sleep with her. So he apparently uh, doesn't have anything to pay her with, so he promises to pay her with a goat, there you are, ladies. This is what you're worth. You're worth a goat. He promises to pay her with a goat, but he doesn't have a goat, so he gives her his ring, his signet ring. And he says, I will give you the goat, and I'll exchange you that for my ring. That's very clearly the mark of Judah. So uh, fast forward a few months later, Judah gets word that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, is with child. Now this is a capital uh, offense. She can be punished with death. And so he sends word to her saying, hey, I heard you are pregnant. What's going on? And she responds, yes. And the man whose ring this is, is the father. Woo! Can you imagine the big gulp in Judah when he gets his own ring back? Oh boy, that's a big problem. You can only imagine what Mrs. Judah thought too. Probably some issues at their house that day. But this is the story. And then this is the son that becomes in the line of Christ. This is Perez. This is where we get him inserted at this point. Now then, uh, the next lady we're going to look at, it, she didn't pretend to be a prostitute. She actually was a prostitute. This is Rahab. In Joshua chapter 2, we're introduced to her. Now, where we find Rahab is she is living in the city of Jericho. This is the first city to be conquered by the nation of uh, Israel as they're coming over, being led by Joshua in to take over the promised land. So uh, Rahab hears word that Joshua is bringing all the troops, and Joshua, in fact, uh, sends a couple spies in to check things out in the city of Jericho. It was called the Great Walled City. Rahab actually ends up taking in these two Jewish spies because she had enough faith to know that God was going to give them this Great Walled City. She had enough faith uh, just in hearing about Yahweh, to know that he could most certainly do everything that he had said he would do. So by faith, she takes in these two young spies, hides them from uh, the, the, the army and the people that are looking for these men inside Jericho, and she saves them, and, and also saves not only herself, but all of her family. So all of her family are saved from the, from the destruction that takes place in Jericho because of the faith of Rahab. Now, then uh, Rahab gives birth, uh, she marries a man named Solomon and gives birth to a young man named Boaz. So you can just mark that one down, Boaz, because Boaz plays into the next young lady in our story. This is Ruth. If you want to read one of the most beautiful stories in all the Bible, way more fun to teach than Genesis 38, uh, check out the book of Ruth. Now, Ruth was a Moabitess, so she was a foreigner, uh, not a Jew, but she married a young Jewish boy. And her husband actually passes away at a young age, and so does her father-in-law. And so she's left here with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and herself, and they have no real way of taking care of one another. They're widows. Uh, now, by all accounts, Ruth should have gone back to her family in her home country, but she so loved her mother-in-law that she wouldn't leave her. She says, wherever you go, I'll go. Your God will be my God, and if you die, I'll die. 
So she, she's so committed to her mother-in-law. It's a beautiful story that she sticks with her. They come back to Israel, and they wind up, uh, she winds up working in a field owned by a guy named Boaz, who takes a liking to this beautiful little Moabitess girl. And later in the story, we see she actually lays herself down at the feet of Boaz, whose name means strength, and he becomes her redeemer. In that day, they had what was known as a kinsman redeemer. If you were related to a family, you could actually redeem that family's possessions as well as any family members that need to be taken care of. So Boaz swoops in as the knight in shining armor and is able to redeem young Ruth, who has a son named Obed, who has a son named Jesse, who is the father of the king, David. And so it's this beautiful story where Ruth should have been you know, out in the cold on the streets, and instead she ends up in the line of Christ, the great-grandmother of King David. Now, the last story we have with the ladies we're highlighting is noted as the wife of Uriah. Her name isn't actually mentioned in the account here in Matthew, but this is a lady we know as Bathsheba. Now, the story of Bathsheba and David occurs in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, and this is a rather interesting story as well because David, who normally the kings would go out to battle in the springtime. Apparently, a battling season was like baseball season. So come the spring, it's time for spring training. It's time to go fight some people and kill some stuff. But they were smart about it. Whenever it got cold, they're like, yeah, it's too cold to fight. We'll pick this back up in the spring. And so they take time off. But in the spring, it was time for the kings to go out for battle. But David was a little bit later in his career. He'd won lots of battles. And so he stayed home, uh, letting everybody else go out and fight for him. And it's at this time where he stays home and doesn't go do the thing God called him to do that he gets himself in trouble. He's, uh, you know, looking over the city of Jerusalem, and as he's gazing over the housetops, he sees a beautiful young woman on her rooftop uh, naked, taking a bath. And so he decides he wants her. He sends men out to get her, bring her back to him, and they commit an adulterous relationship. So out of this relationship, they then have a child, uh, which is a, a big deal. She finds herself pregnant. Now, David, not wanting to know that he's done this thing, uh, he invites back in uh, Bathsheba's husband, one of his soldiers, a guy named Uriah. And he tries to get him uh, good and liquored up so he'll go home and actually sleep with his wife, thereby covering up the entire scandal. Now, what he didn't understand is that Uriah had way more integrity than David did. He refused to go back home to be with his wife while all the, his brothers were on the front lines fighting battles. So instead, he just sleeps on the king's front porch. David is left in his own mind with no other choice, but he sends a letter with Uriah to the general of the army, a guy named Joab, and says, I need you to put Uriah up at the front lines where the battle is the fiercest, knowing that he would probably perish, which is, in fact, what happened. Uriah dies in battle. David is able to swoop in and take Bathsheba as his wife, looking like a hero to everybody. And yet, we know the whole story. It later gets found out. It's exceedingly embarrassing. But the name Bathsheba is not mentioned. And I point that out to say that these four women, really, what they show is a parallel to a walk into Christianity and through this Christian life. And what I mean by that is Tamar started off as a blatant sinner. She was willing to work her way into heaven any way she had to. She was going to work her tail off to save her own skin. And what we find is in that spot, God was gracious to her. Now then you go to the next young lady, Rahab. She was living a life of sin, and yet 
she had enough faith to know that if she just trusted in this God that she'd heard so much about, that he could save her. And what we see is he, in fact, did very much do that. He had grace upon her. Now then thirdly, we see uh, Ruth, who uh, lays herself down at the feet of the Master, praying that in any way, if you can save me, if you'll just take me in, what's he do? He becomes her redeemer. The word literally means he buys her back. And we see the, the, the life as Christians, we get bought back by, by the, the great redeemer, whose name means strength in this story. And then finally, what we see in the life of Bathsheba is that her name is never mentioned with the sin of David. Do you understand that? That as we walk through this life, when we come to that understanding, we lay everything down at the feet of the master. Do you know he never again mentions our sinful nature? Never one time. She's not synonymous with it in any way. So it's this beautiful parallel that we can see for the Christian life through, the, through our walk. All right, let's uh, move on from there and then take a few more highlights of names that we see pulled out here. If I can get my clicker to work. So let's begin with these names, and just we'll just pull out a few, I promise, for the sake of time and, and your own sanity. Let's look at Abraham, right? Abraham is mentioned here in the line of Jesus, the father of the faith, a man known for his great faith. And yet, if you actually look at the story of Abraham, what we notice is time and time again, the thing he seemed to lack more than anything was faith. I mean, just one story by way of example is God promised Abraham to make him a great nation. So he gives him this promise, and yet they have no children. So he and his wife Sarah get together, and they go, you know what, maybe God needs some help. You ever been there where you're like, God, I think you're doing a thing, but maybe you need a little bit of my help. And so she offers up to Abraham her young Egyptian handmaid. Like maybe what God meant is you were going to be a father of nations, just perhaps not through me. I'm going to give you Hagar, my handmaid. You'll have a child through her, and then you can be the father of nations. And so uh, Abraham, being a very faithful guy, he does what most of our guys would do when our wife offers us a young, hot Egyptian handmaid. He goes, no, no, no. Okay, if you insist. All right, not, not nearly as much faith as what we thought he had. They end up having a child. This child's name is Ishmael, and what the Bible says about Ishmael is that he will be also a father of nations, and he will be a wild man. He will war against all men, and this is the father of the Arab nations. And so we see what the sin of Abraham, his lack of faith actually brings us is a continual war in the Middle East. We see Arab nations coming from Ishmael. Now, later on, another 15 years after this, so it takes 25 years, we see Abram, Abraham and Sarah are actually able to conceive a son, and they have Isaac, the son of promise, who, like old dad, he's faithful, but yet he still lacks faith at different times, and also lacks the ability to completely listen to everything God has to tell him. So Isaac and his wife, uh, Rebecca, have a child as well. In fact, they have two children. She's pregnant with twins. God gives her a vision and understanding that the twins she has uh, in her uh, bosom are actually uh, two nations. And so these two nations are going to war with each other inside her belly, but then also that the, the younger, the lesser, is going to rule over the older one. So she shares this with Isaac, and he does what we uh, as men so often do. Uh, she ignores it, or he ignores it completely. He doesn't listen to his wife whatsoever. And instead, he decides to promote his oldest son, Esau. 
So Esau comes out, he's delivered, and then behind him is his little brother holding on to his heel. This is Jacob. He's holding on for dear life. But what uh, Isaac was specifically told was that uh, Jacob would rule over Esau, but instead he shows favoritism over the oldest one. Now, this causes Jacob to turn around and deceive and cheat his older brother Esau out of his birthright. So that moves us on to now you're seeing more of the family drama to Jacob. Jacob, who I mentioned, was holding on to the heel of Esau as he was delivered from the womb. And so what did they name him? They named him Jacob, heel catcher. Apparently, they weren't that creative back in the day with baby names. They didn't have the, you know, the Wikipedias or the babynames.com where they could go on and find these things. So whatever the baby popped out like and looked like, that's what they named him. So the first baby was Esau. Apparently, he was a fuzzy little guy because the name means Harry. So they named one Harry, and the next one comes out, and they're like, look at him holding down to the little heel. We'll call him Jacob, heel catcher. And so uh, Harry and heel catcher grow up, and a heel catcher is constantly throughout his life trying to deceive. He begins by deceiving his brother Esau. He continues to try to deceive his own father-in-law. And it's, it's over and over again a life of deception is what we see out of Jacob. Until one night he wrestles with God. He actually has this encounter with God where he wrestles with him all night leaving him to finally just cling on, hold on to the feet of God. And what he cries to him is, bless me, bless me. That's his cry. And so God turns to him, the angel of the Lord, capital L, which means a prefigurement of Jesus, turns to him and says, no longer shall you be Jacob, but you shall be Israel, which means ruled by God. So his name changes from heel catcher to ruled or governed by God. Now, Jacob has 12 sons. These are the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of those 12 sons is uh, Judah, who uh, we just heard about in the story of Tamar. You can tell the kind of moral fabric that Judah's got. The rest of his brothers were really no better because they took their uh, one brother, Joseph, and actually uh, tried to pretend like he was dead. And instead of killing him, they just sold him to Midian slave traders where he could spend his time in Egypt for the next 30 years. So again, not a great family. You see some of the drama that goes on, some of the, the, the uh, deceivery that is taking place. I think I just made up a new word. Is deceivery even a word? I think I made one up. There you go. You can write that down too. Next we get to, uh, in the line of Judah, is uh, David. And what we just learned about David is here's his track record. He is an adulterer, a deceiver, a murderer, and an all-around bad dad. He's not even a very good father. He's, he's absent most of the time. In fact, he has many sons with many different women. Uh, David had a little bit of trouble with the ladies. And so he has all these half-children here and half-children there. And, and what takes place because of his uh, bad uh, fathering is one of his sons decides he likes one of his half-sisters and actually proceeds uh, to rape her. An awful story. And, and so what David does, because this has taken place in his house, is he does absolutely squatchy. He doesn't do anything about it. So much uh, anger is now within the family that this young lady's full brother named Absalom is so upset that his dad didn't do anything to right the wrong that happened to his sister that he kills his own half-brother. So now we've got 
incestual rape and, and, and murder and everything going on in David's house. And to make things even worse, it, that Absalom tries to actually overthrow his father and become king himself. So this is what's taking place now in the house of David. Now, beyond that, we have uh, David sires a son through Bathsheba named Solomon. His name means peace. And Solomon did know more peace than any other king before him or after him. Uh, he was also given wisdom, more wisdom than any other man that had been alive up to that point. He knew things. He understood things. He, he, God gave him this great wisdom. But then we have to question ourselves, how wise was Solomon really? Because in Deuteronomy 17, God tells the nation of Israel that when you appoint a king, there's three things he shouldn't do. One, he shouldn't multiply horses. Horses were like a sign of power. God wanted them to rely on him, not on their own strength. Secondly, you're not supposed to multiply wealth. Thirdly, the king should not multiply wives. Solomon, what we read through his account, is he had over 40,000 chariots. Chariots are like tanks. So there's strike one for Solomon. Didn't do a great job in that category. We got two more. Uh, secondly, we're told that he had increased so much wealth that silver in the nation of Israel was like rocks, as common as stones on the ground. Now, we're going to get to go to Israel here in a couple years where I'll be able to take anybody that wants to go, and what you're going to find is they've got a bunch of stinking rocks. They've got rocks everywhere. And so what we see is there was a lot of money that had been brought in. So Solomon is now 0 for 2. He's now multiplied wealth. Thirdly, he was not to multiply wives. Solomon, we read, had 700 wives and 300 mistresses. That is some kind of multiplication. He dropped the clutch down and took multiplication to a whole new level when it came to having him some wives. Now we have to ask ourselves a question. How wise was Solomon really? I mean, husbands, I mean, it's hard to keep one wife happy, let alone 700. Like this dude, what in the world? All right. So no more wife jokes. Make a note of that. All right, so uh, Solomon then gives birth to uh, Rehoboam as his son. Now Rehoboam takes over after his dad has this super successful kingdom. Uh, Solomon is known as this great dignitary, and he has all these relationships with other nations all around him. He does a fantastic job, and so he hands the keys of the kingdom over to his son Rehoboam who apparently has none of the charisma or none of the intelligence of his father. Because when he's approached by the, the leaders of the tribes of Israel, they come to him and they said, listen, your dad has increased taxes a bunch on us. Why don't you just give us a little bit of tax relief, and in exchange, we will serve you and we will honor you. And so Rehoboam's response to these men was, listen, uh, my father's uh, waist isn't as big as my pinky. So if you think he taxed you a bunch, you better get ready. I'm going to tax you even more. Now with that, uh, the ten tribes to the north completely split off from the two tribes to the south. And in one fail swoop, Rehoboam loses control of all of Israel. He is left with nothing more than the southern kingdom. And, and what we now know as the nation of Judah is all that Rehoboam is left with. He completely wasted everything his father worked to build. Now then, in this second part, we're going to see a guy named Asa. Now, Asa was a pretty good king in the nation of Judah. Uh, the only problem is he was lifted up with pride, and because of that, he got diseased feet, is what the Bible tells us. 
Now, this is some kind of guy to have in your family tree. He died with diseased feet. I don't know what that means. Apparently, he could have used some Lotrimin. Uh, so we move to the next guy, Uzziah. He also has a pride problem, a really good king. But at the end of his reign, he decides, I'm going to go into the temple. I'm going to actually offer incense to God, which is a job of a priest. Now, there are three offices that God holds near and dear. It's the office of a prophet the office of king, and the office of a priest. And no man is to hold all three of those offices except Jesus, except the Messiah. He was to be the only one to hold all three. So this is a big problem for Uzziah to go into the temple and offer incense to the Lord. He was taking the place of a priest. Now, because of that, he got himself a nice old case of leprosy. And so he spent the rest of his career being sheltered away because, essentially, of his own pride. So let's move ahead to another good king, a guy named Hezekiah, right? He's going to surely do better than these uh, previous guys. He has a, a tremendous reign, is doing really well, seems to love the Lord, trying to get the nation back on track after falling into idolatry. Uh, Hezekiah, in his late 30s, though, gets sick. And so as he gets sick, Isaiah, the prophet, comes to him and says, hey, man, I hate to tell you this, but get things in order, you're going to die. So Hezekiah takes it like a man, not. He cries like a little baby. He wails and moans, begs God to give him more time. I mean, he just got things going well. And so Isaiah has to turn back around, go back to Hezekiah and go, all right, the Lord heard your prayers. He's going to give you 15 more years. So Hezekiah continues his reign. Now, the question is, was that the best thing for Hezekiah? Because in that last 15 years of his life, uh, there's a nation to the north that heard about his miraculous recovery, and so they come down to pay him tribute. Give him a little gift. Hey, a get well card, a, a congratulations on you know not dying card. And so they come down, and, and Hezekiah proceeds to show them all the wealth in the temple. He opens the doors to them. Hey, come on in. Check out all that we got going on here in Israel. Uh, the problem is they were the nation of Babylon who just about 100 years later would come in and completely ransack everything Israel had built up. He opened the doors of the kingdom for them to come right on in. Now, the second uh, thing that happened in that last 15 years is he had a son, a guy named Manasseh. And Manasseh would later become king. He's the next guy on our list. And he was the worst king in the history of Judah. He brought in idolatry. He brought in child sacrifice. All the things that they'd driven out from the Canaanite peoples from before them, he brought it all back in. This dude reigned for 55 years, and he was awful. So we now move on from Manasseh to his great-grandson, a guy named Josiah. Josiah was uh, far better than his great-grandfather. In fact, he brings about this tremendous revival for the nation of Judah. Things are going way better for, for them. Uh, the problem with Josiah is he was an awful listener. And you can read about him in the book of Jeremiah. So Jeremiah details a lot of what took place in the life of Josiah, but he was a bad listener. Uh, he decided to get himself involved in a war that he never should have been in. A couple countries were fighting amongst one another, and multiple people were sent to him by God saying, hey, stay out of it, stay out of it. And Josiah said, I think I'll be involved. And so he goes out to the battlefield, and what would happen but just by chance, just by chance, an arrow happens to fly off of an archer's bow and strikes Josiah and kills him. So, a notoriously bad listener. Now, after Josiah would come, uh, Jeconiah is the next one we'll look at. 
And what we see is he only reigned for three months before being taken away into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who had set up the world's first a true empire. And so the, the nation of Israel had gone from such a tremendous spot. God had given them this, this land, but because of their lack of belief, their lack of faith, uh, particularly what God said is, I, I'm going to tell you that every seven years you're to give the land a Sabbath rest. You're to give the land a rest. Every seven years I'm going to give you a vacation. You don't even have to work. And not one time in 490 years did they ever take the one year off that God promised them. And so what God said is, because you wouldn't take a Sabbath rest for the land, I'm going to give it a rest. I'm going to put you into captivity for 70 years to make up for the 70 Sabbaths you missed. And I'm going to give the land a rest if you won't. And so the next name that we see is a guy named Zerubbabel who was actually born in captivity in Babylon. And so Zerubbabel is in the line of David, and he is actually the man that gets the opportunity to go back to the land of Israel and reestablish Jerusalem. So King Cyrus has taken over. The Medo-Persian Empire has come in and kicked out the Babylonians. And Cyrus, who's specifically called out by name in the book of Isaiah, 140 years before he's born. So that's kind of a wow moment when you're Cyrus and you see your name in the Bible 140 years before you were born. He gives the children of Israel an opportunity to go back and he sends Zerubbabel as the guy to do things and set things up. And so we see this glorious return after 70 years. Uh, the problem was they needed a little bit of a kickstart. They'd get going and they'd fall back. They'd get going and they'd fall back. And so when we look through our Old Testament, we'll see Old Testament books and prophets by guys like Ezra, Haggai, Zechariah, Nehemiah, Malachi. All these people come along to encourage and push things along for Zerubbabel. But then, after Malachi, what we have is silence. Nothing more until we get to the Gospel of Matthew. For 400 years, God does not speak to a prophet in Israel. And yet, out of that, we have to wonder, was God really silent in this 400 years? So, just a little more of a history lesson, because you guys haven't had enough yet. What we find in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, this king of Babylon, has this vision. And in this vision, there's a statue, and the statue has a head of gold, a chest and arms of silver, this torso of bronze, and then legs and feet of iron. And so uh, he, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't understand this own, his vision, so he calls in Daniel, who's known to be this uh, great prophet, and he wants this dream interpreted. And so what Daniel does is he gives him an interpretation, and he says, the head of gold is you, Nebuchadnezzar. You are the head. Your, your kingdom is the greatest. The next kingdom, though, that will supplant you, sorry to tell you this, you're not going to last, is going to be the chest and arms of silver. This is the Medo-Persian Empire. And Daniel tells him these things straight out. This is the Medes and the Persians. Thirdly, after them, is going to be replaced by this uh, empire that you don't know yet. This is the Greek Empire. This is the torso of bronze. And then they will be replaced by the Roman Empire, the Empire of Iron. And so he basically lays out for him history for the next 700 years. Unbelievable historical account. And so what we find is that uh, when Malachi wrote the last book in the Old Testament, it was during the Medo-Persian Empire, which means that the Greeks hadn't come into power and neither had the Romans. And so the question is, has God really not spoken in this time? 
But the reality is he, he was laying things out very clearly. So now, during the Medo-Persian Empire, they uh, were going around conquering uh, people and areas. And one of the areas they went to conquer was an area known as Macedonia. Macedonia is like northern Greece. And they had a guy named Philip of Macedon that decided to rise up and, and hold down the fort and stand up to the Persian Empire. Now what happened is uh, Philip of Macedon lost the battle. He was actually killed. But Philip had a son, had a young son who was around 15 years old when his dad died. He was being uh, schooled and trained in Greek philosophy by a guy you might have heard of named Aristotle. Uh, his son's name was Alex, who at the age of 21 became Alexander the Great and proceeded in just 10 years to completely dominate the entire known world. In just a decade, he wiped out every other kingdom, took care of everything, and established the Greek Empire. So it just tells you, if you got a little nerdy kid that likes to study philosophy, you might not want to kill his dad. He might just take over the world. But needless to say, this establishes the Greek Empire. Now one of the things that also happened as the Greek Empire expanded is they established the Greek language as the common language among all the known world. So they converted everyone to speaking Greek. And this is important because when then they were supplanted by the Roman Empire, the Romans didn't have all the philosophy and the education that the Greeks did. So they kind of liked what the Greeks did. They, they decided to bring it in, and they created the Greco-Roman world. So the, the Greeks were allowed to keep their language and their uh, you know scholarship and their education system, but what the Romans were tremendous at is they were architects. They were builders. And they began to build the most uh, intricate road system that the world had ever known. From one side of the Roman Empire all the way to the other, they built a network of roadways to connect people and to be able to get goods and services and war and all these things that would need to be taking place throughout the empire. So what I want to share with you is now comes Matthew. Now comes the birth of Jesus, who's born into the Roman Empire. At a time where the entire known world spoke one language, where there was a roadway system to get you from one side all the way to the other of the Roman Empire. So you have to wonder, if you're God, not saying any of you are God, you certainly are not, neither am I, but if you just think about it from a God's eye standpoint, if you want to make sure that the gospel message can be carried throughout the entire known world, what are a couple things you'd like to have happen? Perhaps everyone speaking one common language or perhaps a roadway system that would connect one end of the empire all the way to the other where the message can be carried by guys like the Apostle Paul. So the reason for sharing all that is to say that while we think God is silent in our lives, we have these entire stretches where we're pretty sure he's not saying anything, he's not doing anything, that the reality is he is always at work, even in the midst of the silence. Even when we're sure he has forsaken this whole thing. There, there, there's no way in the middle of this mess. And we went through all that family history so you could see it was a stinking mess. That at all points he is at work. And in fact what Jesus would say in John chapter 5 verse 17 is this. Uh, he says that my father has been working until now and I have been working that he is at work in your life, even if you don't see it. He is busy doing things behind the scenes. Secondly, we see that my past does not 
determine my future. That all of us have a past. That's just the reality. And the thing is, my sin is not the thing that's going to keep me from heaven. You understand? It's not my sin that keeps me. It's my lack of willingness to just lay it at the feet of the king. That's the thing. We've all got family. We've all got these backgrounds. We've all got our own flubs and follies and issues and and things that have taken place. That's not the thing that keeps us out of heaven. It's our unwillingness to just give it to him. Because here's the reality. He is constantly in your life and in mine, building roads, making connections, changing languages in the world so that they can know his story. Not just history, his story. And it starts in us. It starts with our testimony. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Lord, I want to praise you for genealogies. A place that we can glean from. Lord, that we can learn from. That we can pick off truths that you've got here for us. Lord, I want to thank you and praise you for you know, the way you work, even in the lives of these like Tamar and and Ruth and Bathsheba, Lord, that we can see the transition for the sinner that's saved by grace. We start off so hard, Lord, working, trying to figure out how can I be saved? How can I work my way into this relationship? And the reality is we cannot. It is only by faith that this can take place. And so, Lord, thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for buying us back. And Father, thank you for not even acknowledging that our sin exists. We praise you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.